are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Except for this particular episode, I will not be discussing a film. I will be discussing the latest season of one of my favorite streaming shows, which happens to be spun off or a continuation of a film series that I really love, the Karate Kid films. Reviewing a streaming show is a first for this podcast, and all things being equal, I always prefer movies at the end of the day. It's such a good, tight form of storytelling. But occasionally, there are streaming shows that do catch my fancy, like a Fleabag or Watchmen or Game of Thrones, or maybe even the latest Game of Thrones spinoff, House of the Dragon, hint, hint. So the format will pretty much stay the same, as I will basically be treating this season as one five-hour-long movie, and with all the requisite categories, of course. And just a warning, of course, there will be spoilers discussed for this season and this show. So, shall we begin? Cobra Kai, Season 5. Created by John Held, John Hurwitz, and Hayden Schlossberg. It stars William Zabka, Ralph Macchio, Courtney Hangler, Yuji Okamoto, Jolo Marduena, Mary Mauser, Tanner Buchanan, Jacob Bertrand, Gianni DiCenzo, Martin Cove, Vanessa Rubio, Peyton List, Dallas Dupree Young, Paul Walter Hauser, Sean Kanan, and Thomas Ian Griffith. The genre would be martial arts dramedy. Today is a turning point at Cobra Kai. Our competition has closed up shop. And the only thing better than a full dojo is a whole valley of full dojos. Come join us. There's only one way to end this. We have to cut the head off the snake. We all get shit wrong sometimes. But if you own up to your mistakes, you always have a shot at making things right. You're playing with fire, Danny boy. And I am gasoline. Hey, whoa, no, no, no. I didn't mean literally cut his head off. Well, I'll say this about the fifth season of Cobra Kai. There are tropes and cliches aplenty, but this show is still finding ways to surprise me. Witnessing the evolution of Johnny Lawrence as a character has been a kick, pun intended. Billy Zapka has genuinely brought it for this character, as have the writers. It's now one of the great modern redemption arcs in modern TV or movies. Yeah, last time I looked for a job, nobody wanted me. I'm not a suit and tie type of guy. Okay, what if I told you there was a way you could earn real money without being scammed and without a tie? I tried that after high school. Some of the women got a little grabby. Or whatever this sequel series would be categorized as right now. It's been a clunky ride at times for this former All-Valley Tournament champion, now living spokesman for Coors Banquet, which has apparently become Johnny's version of Popeye's spinach. But it has never been less than engaging or fun. And one notable surprise of it has been just how logical his character has been, especially in comparison to his former arch-rival Danny LaRusso. And that's Macchio, still not looking a day over the age of 40. It really comes down to one scene at roughly around the halfway point this season when a disheveled, well, for him, Danny comes to Johnny's apartment, initially belligerent, yet seeking counsel at the same time. That this was actually the first time we have seen these characters interact during this entire season, and I hadn't really noticed? Well, that also speaks to the strong quality of most of the writing and performances up until that point. 
It also helps to have just such a delicious villain like Terry Silver dominating so much of that screen time early on. With Silver, of course, being played by that most devious ponytail of all of them, Thomasine Griffith. There's a difference between being heard and being listened to. They heard you, but they listened to me. Now, if Mr. Keene or any of his friends step foot in this dojo again, what will you show them? No mercy, sir! But back to Johnny and Danny. Danny has been driven to slightly unshaven levels of desperation in response to an escalating stream of machinations from Terry Silver, who was determined to not only take over the valley with his dojo franchises, but to drive a wedge between Danny and his wife, Amanda. And he's been fairly successful so far. Amanda has had it with the back and forth, and she's taken the kids to her sister's for a break. So Danny starts things off by asking Johnny to help him take down Terry Silver. And Johnny says no, as he has more urgent things to focus on. And then Danny gets belligerent with him. Yep, and I'm sure that you can guess what happens next. And since when do you ever leave well enough alone? What happened to the strike first badass, huh? Do I need to kick his ass to wake him up, or was it just one tournament loss all it took to turn you into a pussy? What are you doing? You show up out of the blue, raving like a lunatic, you reek of booze. And now you want to fight me? I don't want to get pulled back into this rivalry with Silver. What's going on with you, man? Or so you would think. Because as irrational as Danny is acting, Johnny's response is actually the polar opposite. And they have a reasonable conversation as a result. With the resolution, of course, to take down Terry Silver. I mean, we still have a crazy show about competing dojos here. But it's a nice scene regardless. And it's one of several nice moments throughout this season when we witness several major characters finding better, more mature versions of themselves, even as they're still often getting into martial arts brawls with rivals at any number of inopportune settings, including furniture stores, car dealerships, and even a water park. Unless you want to get your ass kicked, I suggest you stay on your side of the park, away from us. All right. You guys stay on your side, we don't have a problem. We have better rides on our side anyway. But no matter, because there's still plenty of heart and several grace moments along the way, helped in no small part by some clever writing and good performances that bring the emotion whenever necessary. Another highlight of this season has to be Miguel's journey to Mexico in those first two episodes, as he seeks out his real father. By the way, Miguel might very well be my favorite character overall in this show. The general arc of his encounter with his real father sort of follows the formula we have seen so many other times with this type of storyline. But Jolo Marijuana plays it just right, going more natural and avoiding all the typical Because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids! histrionics that you would see on most other sitcoms or teen dramas. You could see this kid just starting to break down after he leaves a bar where his real father is, just walking alone at night as he calls his mother, crying and apologizing. Miguel? Hey, Ma. I'm sorry. You were right. Please tell me you're okay, Miguel. I don't know, but... Miguel! And then who finds him but Johnny, who's been searching all night for him. (laughs) Yeah, we see Johnny step out wearing his goofy souvenir FBI t-shirt, and what could have been melodrama just ends up being a sweet, gratifying moment as Miguel cries into his arms. 
And despite some heartfelt moments and genuine performances sprinkled throughout, Cobra Kai still never ceases to be fun. As I previously mentioned, there's wall-to-wall karate with at least one major fight sequence in each episode. It's all generally well choreographed, and it's also very obvious how adept most of the younger cast members have become at performing much of their martial arts daring do over the past five years, especially Mary Mauser, who plays Samantha LaRusso, and Jacob Bertrand, who plays Hawk. Along those lines, the quality of the fighting sequences is also certainly helped by the elevation of Chosen into a main character this season. You are better than this. How would you know? You've never seen me fight. It is obvious. You are troubled. Maybe you do not want to train anymore now that you are champion, huh? I don't just fight for a trophy. I want to be strong. To defend what's mine. Good reasons. What about you? Why be a sensei? Honor. That's it? That is everything. Chosen was, of course, the main villain of The Karate Kid Part 2, which... Opening weekend, seeing that movie remains one of my most memorable in-theater experiences as a kid. I just have such a soft spot for that movie. And Yuji Okamoto's delicious villain performance was one of the highlights of it. The dude just had swagger, playing this bully who you loved to hate. And ever since, I've always noticed this charismatic actor's on-screen appearances, no matter how small, in movies going back decades now, including Real Genius, Inception, The Game and a slew of TV shows. It's just great to see him return to such a meaty role like this, even though he's no longer the bad guy. Chosen has now had his own redemption arc, and yet he's still among the most convincing of the cast when it comes to fighting. At the end of the day, this is still very much Billy Zabka's show, though. Even though we have convincingly seen his Johnny transform into a more upright, rootable protagonist with a purpose, he's still having a blast with this character who at his core is a man out of time, comically adapting to life in the 21st century, resulting in what I consider to be the most sneaky, funny line of dialogue this season. Overall, this latest season was a blast, loaded with highlights and just enough low points that I wouldn't even consider this to be the show's best season overall either. The ongoing gang-like battles between the two teen factions, it sometimes gets a bit repetitive, especially that aforementioned water park sequence, which is resolved in a matter that doesn't even really make much sense. And the season's jam-packed final episode, while very satisfying, it does overdo it with a few too many twists. Penis breath, how could you? Gee, I don't know. Maybe because they don't call me penis breath. You know, you guys have been so dead set on taking down Cobra Kai. And I didn't even want to leave in the first place. I mean, look around. I got snacks, swag, smoothies. Our dojo doesn't even have a roof. Or, like, any chicks. No offense, Sam. All right, all right, penis breath, shut up. However, these are minor criticisms for what is an enduring piece of pop culture, which has accomplished the rare feat of finding new life within a completely different format. Cobra Kai truly never dies. And that brings us to the categories. The first category is the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the show, not the film, the show. Over the first four seasons, Cobra Kai featured clever usage of many a notable pop song from the 1980s, and this latest season was no different. And when you have five plus hours of content here loaded with throwback needle drops, this is obviously a tough category to nail down to just one song. To start, Season 5 actually had some notable songs, which I have cited recently for other movies, including one of the top picks from my recent episode, Top 10 Needle Drops, actually performed for the 90s action gem, Desperado. It's the very catchy, 
Canción del Mariachi, performed by Los Lobos with vocals from Antonio Banderas, who's the star of the movie. Imagine my delight to hear this used during the first episode when Johnny and Robbie take on some bad guys who try to rob him in Mexico. And the universe of this show is also sprinkled with Rocky references, including Johnny's reverence for Rocky IV, which actually becomes a plot point late in the season as he uses it to bond with the judge for the international dojo competition. And most notably, we hear one of my personal favorite needle drops of the 80s, cited in the recent Rocky III episode. Yep, it's Eye of the Tiger, from Survivor, of course. And you just haven't lived until you've had the opportunity to witness Johnny, Danny, and Chosen jam out to this classic in the back of a limousine in Episode 9. It's me, Eye of the Tiger, it's the thrill of the fight, rising up to the challenge of a rival. And the last lone survivor stops his prey in the night, and he's watching us all with the eye of the tiger. <laughs> And as if that wasn't enough, with 2022 being the year of Top Gun Maverick, episode four of this season kicks off with an on-the-nose but quite funny homage to the volleyball sequence from the original Top Gun as we watch Carmen, Dream of Johnny, flexing and spiking on a sandy volleyball court to the tune of Kenny Loggins playing with the boys. I'm here for whatever you need, Carmen. However, for me, the best needle drop of this season was actually more of an original song, or at least one I had not heard as a needle drop before in any other movie or TV show, though from a somewhat familiar source, and that band would be the 1977 to 1985 incarnation of Van Halen, fronted by David Lee Roth. Their huge 1984 breakthrough album, called 1984, would feature several big hits, often overheard throughout pop culture, including Jump, Hot for Teacher, and Panama. Interestingly, the showrunners decided to choose a rocker from an earlier, more obscure Van Halen album, that would be Fair Warning, which came out in 1981. The song is Unchained, and we hear it playing over an epic face-off in Episode 8 between the two dueling dojos, Miyagi-Do and Cobra Kai, as we cut back and forth between each of their presentations to the committee for the world-renowned Sekai Taikai Tournament. The song itself, honestly, really doesn't sound much different from other more popular Van Halen tunes, notably Panama, which it sounds kind of similar to, but it still rocks. Do we teach offense? But with a badass twist... Show them the screaming eagle. Ready? Yeah! Cobra Kai, we don't believe in baby steps. We throw our students straight into the fire. Teddy Payne. Only started training with us this year. Now look at him. He jumped! Yeah! 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 
And now the next category, and that would be wasted talent, the most underutilized talent involved with this particular season of this show. Gratefully, most major characters get their meaty stories and moments, but I could have used more Hawk during season five for sure. Hawk has been played winningly by Jacob Bertrand, and it has been so much fun to watch his character's evolution over the previous seasons from nebbish to badass to bully to good-natured champion. And sadly, there's just not much of him this particular season. He gets a final match towards the end of the season, but even that's cut short thanks to cheating from the Cobra Kai squad. At the very least, we do get to see the slow but steady reemergence of his mohawk. That should be Hawk. He beat me fair and square. And I bowed out at the last tournament, so he deserves to represent us. Uh, wow. It's an honor I don't take lightly. I'm prepared for the challenge. And now the trailer moment, the scene or moment that best describes this particular season of this show. My favorite sequence in the whole season might be a montage which kicks off episode 7 featuring some of our main protagonists in voiceover commiserating over how Cobra Kai is spreading like a virus throughout the valley as we see foreboding imagery of Carmen pulling out a cobra-shaped mailer out of her mailbox. New grand opening giveaways in front of Cobra Kai storefronts and there's grim Hans Zimmer-like music playing over all of this, which almost sounds like Bane's theme from The Dark Knight Rises, if I'm being honest. And this montage culminates with our four main protagonists, Danny, Johnny, Chosen, and Amanda, standing around a light-up table featuring a map of the greater San Fernando Valley. And they've marked up each new Cobra Kai location with a black flag. They're losing territory to Terry Silver. Yep, our heroes now actually have their own war room in this ongoing battle for the retail karate soul of the valley. It's an image that's both ridiculous and glorious. Something's cooking over there. We have to make our move now. If we don't, every kid in the valley's going to be forced to choose. Side with Cobra Kai. Grand opening of our new location. You should come check it out. Or feel the pain. Another location just opened today in Toluca Lake. Silver's dividing and conquering. And now the final category, and that would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this season of this show. Thanks to sequences like the one I just described, Cobra Kai as a show is always on that knife's edge between self-aware and self-parody. Oh, there are callbacks and fun needle drops, and just the overall premise threatens to collapse in on itself at points. I mean, the stakes we're talking about is Silver's attempt to spread his dojos to take over the valley, and eventually the world even. And it's a testament to the tonal acumen of the showrunners, Hurwitz, Schlossberg, and Held, that sequences like these can coexist during the same run featuring a genuinely heartfelt scene of a teenage boy, guess who, walking away from his girlfriend who just broke up with him keeping a stiff upper lip in view of her and then just starting to quietly whimper as he gets further away with his back to her. All three writers have backgrounds in comedy, and they were most well-known previously for writing raunchy hit comedies during the early 2000s, including Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle and Hot Top Time Machine. 
And when they first proposed the initial concept of Cobra Kai as a streaming spinoff of The Karate Kid, but with a different point of view, they not only brought those absurd comic sensibilities with them, but also a genuine affection for the source material. It was clear from the get-go that these guys absolutely loved the characters from the original film trilogy. And that affection was even on display this past season with how they brought back a pretty one-dimensional bad guy from The Karate Kid Part 3, Karate's bad boy Mike Barnes, played by Sean Kanan. Now, Barnes only appears during two episodes of this season, but it was nice to see his return as this previously single-minded karate thug from that movie was shown to have grown up a bit and even given some depth. I'm so sorry for the things that I said back in the day, the things that I did. Man, I wanted to apologize to you so many times. I, I guess I was worried that it would have triggered something or whatnot, you know. Thought maybe it was just best to leave the past where it is. And yet, we still get the requisite fan service, as we also get to see him fight a bit. Against Chosen and Danny, no less. It's a nice balance, and it shows how every character on this show is shown the same level of respect. It's definitely one of this show's core strengths. For continuing to find new ways to both elevate this material while also having the maximum amount of fun with it, showrunners John Held, John Hurwitz, and Hayden Schlossberg are this season's MVPs. It's, it's, it's been really great, though. Like, you know, we, we have been friends since we were teenagers. We've been talking about The Karate Kid forever. Uh, you know, we had this idea at first as a movie and then as a series for over 15 years. We've been talking about this forever. And we thought we weren't crazy. We thought that people would re respond to the show the way, th the way they have. And to watch this reaction has been all of our dreams coming true. It's amazing. My rating for Cobra Kai, and only my rating for Cobra Kai Season 5, is four stars out of five. Whether or not you're an avid fan of the Karate Kid movies from the 1980s, which I happen to be, you would still be hard-pressed to find a more addictive show out there than this one. And if you're looking to watch Cobra Kai, of course, it's streaming on Netflix. And that ends another No Mercy review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.